Thank you for listening to the preaching ministry of Oxford Baptist Church with our pastor, Andy Brown. We pray you'll be blessed as you apply these truths to your life. One of my privileges is to sit beside Steve in his office and pester him with all of my, oh my goodness, can you believe what the Bible says here? And all of these things, uh, it's been my absolute honor and privilege. Steve sang, of course, the first Sunday that I came to Oxford. And thank you, brother, for putting a nice book in on that to sing on this last day. And I want to say this. I was going back over my notes. For those of you who know me, who know the way that I preach, you know that we've been in the book of Matthew since 2000 and, well, when did we begin? What was last? What was two years ago? 2016, 15, something like that. We've been in this book forever. And I was going back and I was listening to a couple of the notes and I was noticing that the Lord gave me the privilege of preaching the birth narrative in September of Matthew about the same time that my wife was pregnant. I preached the birth narrative on September the 19th. My son was born September the 21st. Now, none of those things were planned, obviously, just in the sovereignty of God. And today, the last sermon that I will preach is, is from on a Sunday morning behind this pulpit. I've got one more sermon on Wednesday night. But the last sermon that I'll preach from behind this pulpit on a Sunday morning is Matthew chapter 6 and verse 13. And we're going to look at the doxology at the end of the Lord's Prayer. How fitting is it that today we get to end in glory? How fitting is it today that... Because of the kind providence of God, like I said, I didn't plan any of this, that we get to look at Matthew chapter 6 and verse 13. So I'm glad and humbled that I get to be with you today to do just that. Shortly after Katie and I got married, I had surgery. Now that's a fine way to start uh, marriage, right? Go from the honeymoon to the operating room. That's fantastic, but that's just the way... That uh, Katie and I, we just seemed to be rolling things. I had a horseback riding accident uh, shortly before we got married. Had to have eight stitches in my skull. It just fit. Why not have a surgery right after we got married? But the surgery that I had was elective. It was an elective surgery to correct something in me that was out of order. I needed sinus surgery to repair what I had in my nose. One of the things, I had a lot of things going on, but one of the things that I needed to repair was a deviated septum. Now, let me tell you a little bit about anatomy this morning. Let me tell you what a septum is. The septum is this tiny bone that separates your left and right nasal passageways. It's supposed to sit straight as an arrow, and if it becomes crooked or deviated, well, it obstructs the flow of oxygen. And so breathing then can become difficult. Mine was so deviated that when I breathed up air, I whistled. That's how bad it was. I remember when I found that out. I was at Kennesaw State University. We were doing a Bible study. We were meeting in one of the science classrooms, and we had an auditorium. And I was preaching to a group of my peers at Kennesaw State. And my Bible study team, they wanted me to wear a microphone and capture it and all of these kind of things. And I was listening back to it. And I'm like, what is this whistling that I keep hearing? Well, that's when I noticed that I had some uh, difficulty breathing. So the doctor, what he had to do is he had to make straight what was crooked so that I could breathe better. 
And who on earth wouldn't want to breathe better? Especially if you were as bad as I was, and every time you're breathing, well, you're whistling. So then I had the surgery, and he corrected the septum. And let me just say that without any obstructions in my nose, I was breathing as I had never breathed before. But to breathe better, the doctor had to take what was crooked and make it straight. He had to take my deviated septum and realign it. Now, studies say that 8 out of 10 people this morning, 8 out of 10 of you, have the same condition that I had. You have a deviated septum. So let's do this. Breathe deeply through your nose this morning. Everybody. All right, now exhale this morning. Now, chances are that if you heard a whistle, chances are if you found that difficult or not satisfying, chances are you need sinus surgery. Now, I'm not an ENT. I don't get paid to say that. But anyway, I'm sorry to bear the bad news to you, but that's just the way it is. Eight out of ten. Now, in most classes, eight out of ten, that'd be a passing grade. But we're not interested in a passing grade this morning. I want to speak to everybody because eight out of ten isn't enough. And tell us that our crooked lives are in need of being conformed to the perfect image of Jesus Christ. In all of our wandering, we need to come home. Our restlessness needs to find rest. Our sinning needs to cease. We need to align our lives with eternity. Now, Christ has come. We say that. We don't mean some ethereal thing, align our lives with eternity. We're being specific this morning. And the reason that we're able to be specific this morning is because Christ has come. And Christ has come to show us eternity. Christ has come to a people who had gone astray as their shepherd to lead them to green pastures and let them stay beside still waters. He's come to this earth that he's created that had gone astray, that had gone crooked, that is filled full of quagmires and pits. He's come to make every crooked path straight. And see, the reason that we know this is because we know the truth. We know the way. We know the life. We know Jesus. And this Jesus stands from a cross in an empty grave with His body bearing the wounds of crucifixion with nail-pierced hands reaching out, calling us to find rest for our weary souls. And there's only one way to find rest. And I didn't say this. Jesus said it. Only one way to find rest. Rest comes by following Jesus. What does that mean? It means that you have to forsake your own way, turn from your own way, and turn to Jesus. You have to go from your way to His way. Christ has come to show us eternity. And now that Christ has come, all of history hinges upon His reality. And His coming has made us keenly aware of a specific danger. We are aware of this danger because of Him and who He is. He is truth. He is beauty. He is love. He's confronting us with our choosing to remain in darkness when He has called us to light. Enjoying the desolation of the wilderness when He has called us to a land flowing with the milk and honey of His presence. 
walking down a crooked path filled with dangers, toils, and snares when He has shown us a safe but a narrow way that leads to life. Christ has come calling us to align our lives with His reality. And the reality that He has is eternal. The reality that He has is not just for today, not just for tomorrow, but for every day and every tomorrow. Christ calls, confronting us and calling us to align our lives with eternity. Now let me tell you something about His call. His call is not passive. How could it be? He's the Lion of the tribe of Judah. His call is not simply passive, saying, well, just come on, follow me, letting us do all the work. His call is active as He takes our lives and lets them be consecrated, Lord, to Thee. He takes our moments and our days and lets them flow in endless praise. He both calls us and He conforms us. So today I hope you have your Bible. Today I invite you and encourage you to take your Bible and turn to Matthew chapter 6 and find the prayer that the Lord has given us right at the heart of the Sermon on the Mount. Now I'm going to do something today that I don't believe I've ever done in my 10 years of actively preaching consistently. I haven't done this. I'm going today to preach from the footnotes of my Bible. Now, over the weeks, as we've read the prayer together, I've noticed some of you have looked and you've been very puzzled. You've thought that every time we've read this, I've left something out. You've said, what on earth, the preacher, you stop with deliver us from evil, but my Bible keeps going. It has, for thine is the kingdom, the power, the glory forever. Amen. What about that? Some of you have noticed that we've not read the familiar doxology. And the reason, because of the traditional use of this prayer... Has, a, has this doxology that may or may not have been originally intended by Matthew. So you say, well, what, what's the big deal? Here's the big deal. Because when we read the Bible, we want to know what God has said. We don't want to know what man has inserted as something that even though it sounds great, we want to know when we read our Bibles, thus saith the Lord. So we have this here. This, this is a, what's called a textual variant. There is question as to whether or not the doxology in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 13 was put there by the Spirit-inspired author Matthew. Now the scribe who may have inserted that was not led of the Spirit the way that Matthew was. So we have a question on our hands. That's why in the English Standard Version, which is my preferred version, we have that in the footnotes. They didn't take it out of the Bible, they simply put it in the footnotes. And I know there's some, especially critics, but even some within the church, they have a real problem with that. They look and they say, aha, your Bible has errors in it. And to that we simply have to say, no, it doesn't. There is a question at one juncture as to whether or not this passage was original, but that's far, listen carefully to me, that's far from suggesting that our Bible has errors in it. So when my ESV puts this verse in a footnote, what's going on? The translators of this, who remember what they're looking at, they're looking back to the Greek. 
They're not going back to something written in the 1500s, 1300s, 1200s, 1600s. They're going back as close as they can to what Matthew wrote in the 50s A.D. to try to get what uh, was originally intended. And so when they are translating this and they put this note in a footnote, they are expressing the utmost confidence that they have in the trustworthiness of Scripture. I want you to be encouraged when you read your Bibles and you see this footnote that's not expressing error. What that is expressing is the translator's confidence in the trustworthiness of Scripture. Because this footnote lets all the critics know that when we read Scripture, we are after one thing. Thus saith the Lord. We don't worship the Bible. We worship the God of the Bible. And we are so confident in the trustworthiness of the Bible that we put those verses that are in question in footnotes so that all of our critics will know that we as Christians, we have nothing to hide. We're not trying to pull the wool over anybody's eyes. We're pursuing the God of heaven who has made himself known definitively in his son Jesus Christ who is the revelation of the Father who has given us his word and God has stamped his approval on his word by being raised from the dead. Why is that? Why do we say that we have nothing to hide? Here's the reason. Because we want the most accurate translation that we can. We are after, thus saith the Lord. We don't want to worship the King James Version of the Bible. We don't want to worship the English Standard Version of the Bible. We don't want to worship the New American Standard Version of the Bible. We want to worship the God of the text. And so, when a translation, a modern translation like the English Standard Version or the North American Standard Version or the Christian Standard Version or even the New International Version, when they put these things in footnotes... They are translators who are faithfully committed to the accurately translating Holy Scripture. Now you say, Pastor, you are laboring so hard to tell us this. The reason that I am is because I've labored over it for a few weeks, even whether or not to bring this passage to you. Now, and I was doing some study, which is what I love to do because I get to take what happens in that study and bring it here to this moment. Everything comes to a head The hours and hours of preparation and prayer all comes to one 40-minute time that we have together. And I was reading, and some scholars, they suggest that the doxology here in Matthew 6.13 is not part of Matthew's original writing. But there's also on the other side a fair number of other scholars who say that it probably is original. But here's the kicker. Even the ones who say that it's not original, you know what they do? They all deal with it. They all deal with it. So here's what we want to do. I'm going to let you in on a secret. And I don't have time to explain this because I'd bore you to death. But I think that this doxology, we can trust it as part of what Matthew originally intended. So let's read the Bible today. Listen to the word of the Lord. Matthew chapter 6. Beginning in verse 9. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts. As we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom 
and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Would you pray with me this morning? Give us strength, Father, as we now dig deep into your word to learn from you what you require of us. In Jesus' name, amen. Listen, by you and I having this moment that we just had of reading this prayer, you know what just happened? We have just glimpsed into eternity and seen the way that God is aligning our way with His eternal glory. That's what we've done. I hope that you read Scripture supernaturally. I hope that when you read the Bible, you don't just flippantly let it go like water over a, over a rock. I pray your rock has a little bit of moss on it that soaks up the Word. So that after you've read the Word, you become a little squishy and soggy. Because that's what we need. We need the Word of God to transform our lives. And so by us reading this prayer, we just glimpsed into eternity and seen the way that God is aligning our way with His eternal glory. So what I want to do is I want to focus all of our efforts on understanding what, the, what we are saying when we pray. For thine is the kingdom and the glory and the power forever. Amen. Remember what this prayer is. We've been laboring for many months over this prayer, and I don't want you to lose sight of this. There's a reason that this prayer is at the heart of the Sermon on the Mount. In this sermon, Christ gives us His vision for this new humanity that He has formed and is forming in Himself. It is a new humanity forged by the cross, sealed by the Spirit of God. And listen, at the heart of this sermon... There's a prayer. At the heart of this sermon, God has given us something to direct our lives like no other task on earth can do. And that is prayer. Now this prayer, the reason that we've labored so intensively over it is because this prayer is a summary of both the ministry of Jesus and our lives in Christ. Listen, very quickly, let me go over it with you. This prayer teaches us that Christ has come to bring us into eternal fellowship with God. That's what we pray when we pray our Father. This prayer teaches us that Christ has come to confront us with God's majesty in heaven. Hallowed be thy name. This prayer, we learn that Christ has come to give us an eternal perspective. That's what we mean when we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Christ has come to teach us to depend upon Him. That's why He gave us, give us this day our daily bread. Christ has come to teach us grace and to show us grace. And this is what we pray when we pray, forgive us our debts, and we've also forgiven our debtors. And Christ comes to enable us to walk in the light of eternity each new day as we pray, lead us not into temptation. Christ has come so that we can rest in the hope of His salvation. And that's what we pray when we pray, deliver us from evil. And it's all for His glory. Which is the reason we pray, yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. There is nothing else this side of eternity that will set your focus on eternity like praying this prayer. 
Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, He taught us to pray. And when we pray this way, we are praying for heaven to come down and glory to be all that we know. Listen to me this morning. Don't waste your life. Align your life with eternity. How fitting is it that that we end with glory? It's perfect. We end with glory. The Lord leaves us with this incredible weight. No wonder getting on our knees before God is an appropriate posture for prayer. Because we feel the weight of His glory. And it forces us to our knees. The Lord leaves us with glory at the end of the prayer. I believe because His entire life was full of glory. Think about it. There's two occasions where we see the life and ministry of Jesus sort of bookended in the beginning and at the end. In the beginning, shepherds, they met angels on the hillside with a declaration of glory. You remember that? A group of poor shepherds on the hillside, they heard the angels declare glory. And when Christ ascended, the angels, they met another group of would-be shepherds, the apostles there, who Christ commanded to feed His sheep. They met them with the same message of glory. And so in the beginning you have glory, and in the end you have glory. And we learn a great deal about what Jesus has accomplished by these two glorious encounters. Because Jesus has come into a world that had exchanged the glory of the immortal God with worthless images of men and beasts. When Jesus comes to earth, the Romans are reigning over most of the world. But here's the kicker. Caesar in his lofty palace thought himself a God. He never received an angelic host declaring him glorious. God instead chose to reveal his glory by something so ordinary that it still to this day is overlooked. The world is still bent on making no room for the Savior who lay his little head away in a manger. Here is the Romans in all of its glory, the epitome of the kingdoms of this world. And here is Christ, the incarnate Son of God, whose life is bookended with declarations of glory by heaven. How poetic that Christ would come when He did and how He did and then to teach us to pray just like this. And end our prayer with Thine is the glory. I like the way that one of my favorite writers, N.T. Wright, said about the contrast between the two kingdoms, the kingdoms of this world and the kingdoms of Christ. Listen to what he said. The two systems stand over against one another. Augustus's empire is like a well-lit room at night. The lamps are arranged beautifully. They shed pretty patterns. But they haven't defeated the darkness outside. Jesus' kingdom, on the other hand, is like the morning star rising, signaling that it's time to blow out the candles, to throw open the curtains, and to welcome the new day that's dawning. And that's what happens when we pray this prayer that the Lord has given us. We are making a declaration that this Jesus who taught us to pray is the same Jesus who bore the wrath of God on Calvary and made atonement for our sins and then walked out of a grave triumphantly. The dawn of the new day is here. 
Even though, even though there's darkness still in the land, the sun is coming up, the morning star is rising, and as Malachi tells us, it's rising with healing in its wings. So God, by giving us this prayer, He has given us a double vision of reality. And we have that double vision of reality because Christ has shown it to us. Christ has shown us love. He has shown us life. And He calls us to walk in this way. And the way to walk is on our knees as we pray, Thy kingdom come. Thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. It's important for us to understand this prayer. Because every other vision that we have outside the glory of God, every other vision that you could imagine for your life, no matter how great it is, if it's outside the glory of God, is worthless. People spend their lives, and I hope it's not true of you this morning, but if it's not true of you this morning, it's true of somebody that you know, your neighbor that desperately needs you to know that they're made for more. They spend their lives chasing efforts, arranging their lives after nothing that is nothing more than a mirage or a shadow of fleeting dust and vapor. You see, Jesus has come and given us the reality undergirding and upholding the universe. The glory of God. And this vision of the glory of God is, is one that you and I have to continually beat into our hearts. And don't miss this. The way that we get it into our hearts is by getting on our knees and praying. Now there was a man who taught us to keep this vision of the glory of God central. There was a man who taught us to align our hearts with eternity It was Israel's greatest king, King David. I want you to take your Bibles and turn with me because I want you to feel the full weight of it. I want you to turn to 1 Chronicles chapter 29. And the reason I want to have you leave this passage is because I believe that this passage that we're going to find in the Old Testament is what this doxology at the end of the Lord's Prayer is modeled after. Because we're going to see David modeling what Christ teaches us here. So let me read, begin reading in First Chronicles 29, verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord. See if you hear anything that you recognize. Therefore David blessed the Lord in the presence of the assembly, and David said, Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the heavens and on the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, O our God, and praise your glorious name. Does it sound familiar? Sort of sounds like yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen, doesn't it? What did we just read? This is Israel's greatest king. 
who is a man who commands armies and they go whichever direction he says. A man who's got more money than anybody else alive in his kingdom. Israel's greatest king, acknowledging the everlasting kingship of God. No wonder David was the greatest king. Remember, before David, there was a, uh, Israel demanded a king. The story in, in Samuel, Israel demanded a king, but they wanted a king according to the patterns of this world. And who did God give them? He gave them Saul. And let me just say this, Oxford, as you're preparing to search for a new pastor, remember 1 Corinthians chapter 2. You can either have a pastor after the pattern of this world, or you can have a pastor after the pattern of the Scriptures. Be careful. Learn from Israel when God gave them Saul. Be careful. God may give you exactly what you asked for. And so there was this Saul who brought sorrow to Israel. And even though God granted Israel an earthly king, the king was to remind them of who was really the king. And the king was not David sitting on his throne in Jerusalem. The king was the king who, whose canopy is above the earth, whose throne is in the heavens. This is the king, the Lord God. And so David models this as he prays before Israel, Thine is the kingdom. Do you know this is David's last thing that he says publicly? The last words, there they are right there, First Chronicles 29. Now he says a little before after that, but look at how he starts. His last words are reminding people of the eternal God who is king. Now how on earth could David pray this way? Because he listened and trusted in the word of the Lord. You see, God promised David that he would cause a king to come after him from the line of David who would have an everlasting throne. This king who was coming would reign forever and ever. See, David, he's going to die. But the one who comes from David will be the defeat of death for all time. You see... Number one this morning, His is the kingdom. Not ours. And I know I'm talking to myself this morning. Because preachers, they're not immune from pursuing our own kingdom. Matter of fact, preachers, we may be more susceptible to this than some of you. Because preachers can fall into the trap of thinking that God can't go on without them. We just lost Billy Graham. One of Graham's lasting legacy is that he knew that he was dispensable. And so he didn't preach himself. He preached Christ. Because the Christ that Graham preached was indispensable. And so he called men not to follow Billy Graham. He called men to follow Jesus As John Wesley said, God buries His workmen, but He carries on His work. As Count Zinzendorf of the Moravians said, Live, preach, die, and be forgotten. His is the kingdom. Too many waste their lives pursuing their kingdom. Maybe you're here this morning and you've got it wrapped up in the prettiest religious wrapping that you can think about. But in the reality, what's behind all of that wrapping is nothing more than your own kingdom and your own glory. You open up the wrapping behind closed doors and you open the box and you see a mirror of yourself or maybe a mirror of what you want to be. But it's just 
you that you're pursuing. What a fool's endeavor. They play the devil from John Milton's Paradise Lost who said that he would rather be a star player in his own narrative than play second fiddle to God in his narrative. And like Satan, many who pursue their way, they forfeit glory. What a great shame. They gain the whole world, but they lose their own souls. Jesus is calling you to life. He's calling you to heaven. He's calling you to joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Because His kingdom is inevitable. You can't stop it. Your kingdom will be destroyed. All the kingdom of this earth will fade away, but one will remain. His kingdom is inevitable. And how can you say that, preacher? Because Jesus and His resurrection proves it. I can take you today. We can get on a plane and drive 12 hours. We can land in Tel Aviv. We can ride another three hours on bus. We can go to Jerusalem. We can go to the tomb of the Holy Sepulcher. And guess what will be there? Dust and rocks. Every other tomb that you can go visit. We can also take a visit. We can go to all the other leaders of the great world religions. But you know what we'll find there? Bones. But when we go to Jerusalem, we'll find a tomb that was once occupied by a crucified man who was born in Bethlehem. The tomb is empty because Jesus is alive. His is the kingdom. His is the power. John tells us that all things were made through Jesus and without Him was nothing that was made Listen, He didn't just make it and leave it, spinning things into motion and just letting it all play out as it all plays out, leaving it to be. Hebrews tells us that He is upholding the world by the word of His power. What does that mean this morning? It means that the rain that's falling outside right now, the air that's filling our lungs right now, are all due to His power. The Bible shows us that the wind and the seas obeyed Him, making everyone around Him wonder. The crowds, they mocked him. They said that a little girl who had died was only sleeping, but he left the mocking crowd speechless as he raised that dead girl to life again. The powers of hell, they thought that they had won, but three days later they saw that what he had done could not be undone as he rose with his power from the grave. The world through, you and I through our worst at Him, the gruesome death of crucifixion, and He overwhelmed it by His own power, the power of His resurrection. You see, number three, His is the glory. He also came showing us the glory of God. His entire ministry was casting despair on all the powers of hell and darkness. And ultimately, He displayed His glory on a cross Jesus has made the eternal weight of God's glory accessible to us. And then He does this. He makes it accessible to us. And then He consumes us with it. The same glory that will one day cover the earth is the same glory that covers our lives, those of us who trust in Him. His is the glory forever. Only... His glory is forever. Hebrews says it best. 
Listen to this. is my, one of my favorite passages in all the Bible. But of the Son, He says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of Your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, Your God has anointed You with the oil of gladness beyond all Your companions. And You, Lord... You laid the foundations of the earth in the beginning. The heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish. But you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you'll roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same. And your years will have no end. How else could we say anything than this prayer? If the reality of what we've just read in Hebrews is true, how else could we say anything but this prayer? And how appropriate is it that we end this prayer with the word, Amen. You know what that word amen means? I used to think it was amen too, and then I, I, I read the Greek and it's amen. Anyway, that's another story. You know what that means? Amen means so be it. His is the kingdom, His is the power, His is the glory forever, so be it! You know what we pray when we say amen? There's no other way to say amen in reality other than align ourselves with what is true. And when we pray this amen, we are praying reality. The truths of this prayer are more sure than the sun's coming up tomorrow. Do you believe that? When we say amen in this way, we align our hearts with eternity. And we're not alone. Because when we say amen, we are surrounded by a whole host of witnesses who have placed their hope in the certainty of this prayer. Of the certainty of our Father who art in heaven. Why don't we stand together at Oxford And say this with me. Say the prayer. When we say amen, we are surrounded by a whole host of witnesses who place their hope in the certainty of our Father who art in heaven. Hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Now don't you want that amen to be true of your life? Don't you want this morning to be consumed with His glory? 
You can spend your life pursuing all these things, but only one thing matters in the end. You know what it is? Jesus. Jesus. Listen to me. God takes full responsibility to the life that is wholly surrendered to Him. What does that mean? It means the God who moves heaven and earth. The God who will one day take the glory and cover the earth. With that same glory, He will consume you. And from this vantage point today in Oxford, Georgia, He will align your temporary life with His eternal purpose and consume your temporary with the forever that He has for you. Align your life with eternity. Surrender to the God who's come to bring you to Himself. See, if you pray this prayer and you mean it, you will find out what life is all about. But you have to surrender. You have to come to Him who has moved heaven and earth to come to you. And God is your witness, knows whether or not you are His, knows whether or not you've trusted in Him, And you do too. My prayer for everyone here today is that we will make it our effort to align our lives with His is the kingdom, His is the power, His is the glory forever, so that at the end of our life it can be said of us, Amen, Amen, Amen. Father, we love You. And we are so grateful for You calling us to Yourself, giving us this eternity Letting us, Lord God, from this vantage point, see the dawn of the new creation in the sun. The same glory that will fill the earth is the same glory that's available to us now. And my prayer is that we will be consumed by it. Maybe there's some here today for the first time they need to be consumed by it. Maybe others, Lord God, who that flame that they have fixed in their heart has grown so dull and dim that they don't even recognize it anymore. May today be the day that your Spirit quickens the hearts and burns our hearts into a flame for Jesus. During this invitation, Father, if people need to make a decision for you, I pray that you would prompt them to do what you command them to do. And we'll give you all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. We pray God will use this message for His glory in your life. If you would like more information, please feel free to contact us at info at OxfordBaptistChurch.com. Oxford Baptist Church is located in Oxford, Georgia. If you're close, we'd love to meet you.